This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. I want to live a healthy and I want to live a long life, but there's always an end to the journey. And at the end of the day, you have to have a why. You have to have the why and then the how is secondary. He or she who has a why can bear almost any how. And I truly believe that longevity can be associated with that why. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, if you follow a plant-based diet or you describe yourself as a vegan or vegetarian, you've probably heard this question a million times. Where do you get your protein? How can you grow muscle or consider yourself an athlete if you never eat meat? Well, my guest today has some experience of that and some answers. He knows from personal experience. Santino Panico is a former US college football player and a filmmaker. His new documentary, From the Ground Up, tells his story, that of an aspiring football star who thought he was doing everything right in terms of his diet and training regime. Lots of meat and eggs, only to suffer ill health and ultimately fail once he hit the gridiron for the University of Nebraska. It was the beginning of an educational journey that I think it is fair to say has transformed his life. Santino, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Peter, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Let's start from the beginning. Did you always want to be a footballer? I did. I, my, my dad and I, our relationship um, stemmed from me, my earliest childhood memories of watching football games with him, and my favorite ball player was Joe Montana. And I just remember seeing you know, him play and be at a, a stadium that was like just Chicago Bears against the San Francisco 49ers and taking a drive all the way down the field and silencing almost 100,000 people just blew my mind and I just loved playing the game. So it was something that I thought I could do and, and I believed in it and I was lucky to have, you know, a family that no matter what I believed in, they always encouraged me to go after my dreams 100%. So that's where it started. My earliest childhood memory was Joe Montana and I said, you know, I think I want to do that one day. So you set out to do everything you could to achieve that goal. Absolutely. So one would think this is extreme, but when I turned 11, I saw a piece on Shannon Sharp, John Elway, and Bill Romanowski when they all played for the Denver Broncos and how they were obsessed with their training habits and and essentially the calories they put into their body. Um, looking back now, it was largely the the diet that that they were eating was you know whey protein, a lot of animal meats. I mean that was the idea. You have to build muscle, and we have this idea that we think that you know because animals' amino acid ratio are similar to ours, you know iron sharpens iron, so to speak. So I guess that that's what the belief was to eat these animal products. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, well. In my mom and dad thought I was crazy. My 11th birthday, I stopped eating like processed sweets. Like I stopped having cake, any type of, you know, candy. And largely I took out all fast food. Now I'm not going to say I didn't eat, you know, if we went to Burger King or McDonald's, I'd eat the burger patty, but I really wanted to make the most of my body. And I had a dream to play football. So at a young age, I, I started out deciding, okay, well, 
I'm not too big now. I where a growth spurt will occur. You know, you, I didn't know, so I decided to try to push my body and eat as much as I could and get as big as I could. And then, by the time you know I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, I was playing on the top level our varsity football team, and it seemed to be paying off. I was getting bigger each year. Um, from sophomore year to my junior year, I gained you know 25, 27 pounds without a growth spurt, mainly eating and lifting and doing everything that you know nutritionists that I could find that would work with a high school athlete that they'd tell me. And, it, and that was protein, protein, protein. And from either eggs, dairy, chicken, steak, pork, fish. And you were doing the standard thing. You were doing still what most trainers, most coaches, most uh, schoolboy athletes would do. Absolutely. I mean, especially in America, we have so much accessibility to meat into these types of foods. It's not, I, I, it's not just athletes that I think believe that meat sources and animal sources are the most nutritious, healthy sources of protein and food, you know, that, that makes you big and strong. Um, you know, usually in America, the food is centered around meat and everything else is kind of just like a side dish to the meat. So the way I looked at it is, okay, well, if I'm told I need to eat chicken, I'm going to have three or four chicken breasts at a meal and then I will, you know, eat small portions of vegetables or eat, you know, pasta and rice and just try to put on as much weight as I can. And th I thought that the weight was coming from building muscle from the protein from the, from the meat sources. So how did you feel at that time? Did you feel good? Were you playing well? Were you performing well? Okay, so it's interesting. I was performing great. I was, I was continuing to grow as a football player. I was continuing to get better. And I had – I was fortunate because I had access to – Great strength coaches, great trainers. I worked with the guy who's the strength coach of the Denver Broncos. His name's Luke Richeson, um, one of the best strength coaches in the world. I, I can honestly say that. And, um, you know, he set my base for strength training. I was strong for my size, my weight to moving weight ratio. Um, but, you know, reflecting, I was bloated all the time. I had digestive issues. I had acid reflux. I had migraine headaches. Um all the time. I'd break out with acne, you know, on my chin. I thought it was my chin strap, but then it was all over my face, sometimes on the back of my neck. And it was, I just thought it was a byproduct of, you know, growing up, going through puberty, you know, constantly lifting weights, constantly sweating. I didn't think that it was abnormal. Um, I suppose the only, in quotes, abnormal thing you were doing was the excessive amount of protein. Correct. Absolutely. That was, and, you know, when you're young, there, you don't have a lot of foresight. You think, I want this and I want it now, and I'm willing to do what I need to do. I mean, I never cheated. I never took hormones. I never took steroids or anything like that. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror if I did that. But at the end of the day, you try to do everything within the rules to gain an edge. And to me, that was, okay, well, I'm undersized for college football, for where I want to play. You know, the biggest, the strongest, the fastest they play. So I had to try to get an edge, and that was – gaining weight, gaining weight through, you know, protein intake and lifting heavy weights. So that's how we did it. And quite frankly, as I reflected, you know, once after I failed at Nebraska, but I had these health issues, it was at that point that I realized I don't feel good. In between sessions, training, whether it was strength and conditioning, agility, you know, ball work, route running, uh, you know, doing, I, I played both sides of the ball. I played wide receiver and I played safety. So, you know, DB drills, it was only like in between sessions, I recall being exhausted and 
you know, when you're an athlete, you get tired. I mean, when you have multiple training sessions a day, don't get me wrong, everybody's going to be tired. But just for the physical specimen that I, the, how young I was, it didn't make sense. But it, it just, you brush it off. It's like, yep, yeah, get ready for the next one. And then it was only until after failing and, and understanding, kind of like trying to pick apart what was going on, that I realized that, okay, I've been doing damage to my health. So after it all went really terribly wrong for you yes. and you had, you'd fallen out of the team, that was the end of your dream, really. Right. It must have taken some time just to, to process that, that, look, this lifelong dream that I've had of being a star football player isn't going to materialize. It isn't going to happen. And not only that, I'm feeling terrible. Right. So it was, a, it was like a one-two punch, you know. So I, I got when, – when I was a senior in high school, I was named – Gatorade Illinois Player of the Year. You know, there's one for each state. Uh, it was a huge achievement, uh, one, one that I was very proud of. I was named U.S. Army All-American. At the time, there was no Under Armour All-American Bowl. Like, if you were an All-American and you got to play in that bowl game, you, you made it. Top 78 players in the country, 39 east of the Mississippi, 39 west of the Mississippi. And, um, you know, I played in the game with the likes of Adrian Peterson, you know, dominant NFL running back. He actually ran me over in the game on the wrong end of a, of a ESPN highlight, believe that or not, it was, you know, that's a claim to fame. Um, and then Ted Ginn Jr., you know, he's a, he's an explosive player still to this day. I believe he plays with the saints. Um, and then scholarship offers, you know, big 10 schools, sec, South Carolina, when Lou Holtz was there. I mean, I was on the fast track to achieving my goals. And then reality hits you, you know, I get to Nebraska, you know, my dad tells me that I'm, I'm impatient. That's the truth. And I really wanted to play. I really wanted to get to the next level. And I thought I had to start as a true freshman. I had to play, you know, 1% of athletes that go into college football play as true freshmen in, in American sports. You know, when you go to the collegiate level, you get five years to play for the red shirt year essentially allows you to grow, kind of understand the system that you're in, whether whatever sport you're playing to adapt to the speed. And quite frankly, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I didn't have the speed at that time. I I was when I got on the field as a as a true freshman punt returner, it was a shock. That the way that how fast that game moved, it just blew my mind. And the, through the season, I did my best to understand it, to 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 try to work with what I had, and it just I didn't have it. You know, if I if I took that year, that freshman year, I think it would have been a little bit different, but you know, I was the worst, statistically speaking, the worst punt returner in the history of Nebraska. And, and the fans let me know it. They were not, <laughs> as an 18-year-old They weren't kid, kind to you. No. And then it's interesting because the Nebraska fans have the best reputation for being real sweet to the, you know, the the visiting opponent. You know, they welcome them with open arms and, and they love, you know, a good football game. And they're complimentary whether win, lose, or draw for the other team. And they came down hard on me. I got booed. They called me a fair catch Panico because, you know, we had in, in the return game, when you have your opponent backed inside their own 10-yard line, we'd bring the house. So that leaves three players on the opposing team to have a free shot at you. So I was either getting annihilated or calling a fair catch. So the Nebraska faithful dubbed me as fair catch Panico, which, I, you know, at the time it hurt. 
because I put my life into this. I sacrificed a lot as a kid. I didn't go to parties. I didn't act like the normal kid. And that, and that's, you know, that was all on me. It was a dream that I wanted to chase and I had goals that I was trying to achieve. And ultimately when you want something bad enough, it comes down to sacrifice. It comes down to what you're willing to do. And I was willing to make that sacrifice. I don't regret one bit. I do it all over again, maybe eat a little bit differently if I could, if I had the knowledge, but I wanted to do it. And I loved football. It gave me a foundation in life that you know, it taught me discipline. It taught me how to work within a team. It taught me how to work within a team concept and understand a role and not complain. Did it cross your mind? Did you question why me? You must have been eating a, a very similar diet to your teammates. I assume that they were coached and trained in, in the same sort of way. They were eating as many eggs as you were, and they were performing better. So did that cross your mind, your thought process, trying to understand what was happening to you? Well, this, this, this is what kind of aggravated me because I thought that I was eating clean. I mean, I was eating a lot of proteins, but I wasn't eating really like the bad food, like the processed sugars. Um, I tried to eat free range eggs and grass fed beef and all that foo-foo stuff. But um, it is it is foo-foo. It's, it allows us to charge higher for things that might not, you know, when the rules are written by government, sometimes they can be skewed and then you can get a price. You know, they, they adapt the price to it. Well, we're going to, label this, that, but you don't really know what's going on unless you go and visit these farms. But what aggravated me was a lot of these guys didn't care how they ate. They were eating. I mean, you see Marshawn Lynch loves Skittles and he dominates, you know, I was, what I was aggravated was like, these guys are so much faster and bigger and they're eating over there. They're eating Cheerios or they're eating kicks and they're loving, they put chocolate chips in their cereal. And I'm like, what am I doing here? Maybe I should do that. It doesn't seem to be hurting them. But, um, you know, when it all came tumbling down and, I had to reevaluate like where I am. Um, I started to read. I, I went, I had, I had migraines like three or four a week. And I'm talking like where light sensitivity would make me feel like I was going to vomit. And now let's, I'm a football player. I've been playing my whole life at the time. There started to be rumblings, you know, uh, you know, the professional football player died of a heart attack and they dissected his brain. And there were some issues with trauma. Now, I got nervous. I thought that that might be the problem here with the migraines. So MRIs, seeing neurologists, there was, didn't seem to have long-term damage. Like I got tested out. There was, you know, didn't seem to be anything wrong with my brain, but simultaneously I had acid reflux all the time, waking up, dry throat, my throat. I mean, my voice is still thrashed to this day. I mean, my voice is hoarse and I, you know, Endoscopy. How do you say? How do you pronounce endoscopy? it? Endoscopy. Yes, exactly. Where they put the it, tube down your throat. Young yeah. age, I had that um, to try to figure out what was going on, and there were no answers. It was either a pill, or it was either another test. And in Amer- the American healthcare system, apparently, what we think is the best way is create the most cost, and then give a band aid for a wound. Then treat the disease. That's right. That's the way it goes. You said a few moments ago that if you'd had your time again and the knowledge, the education that clearly you have now. So you got to a point in your life, this crisis moment really for you, your dreams shattered, when you did start to get that education and you looked into food and you tried to understand food and how it affected your body. Tell me what you learned. So once I was feeling this way when football came to an end, and I started to read and I started to understand there were, there were studies coming out about the health effects of consuming too much processed meat, consuming red meat, what it does to your colon. Uh, 
and back up and acid reflux. I mean, I was like, oh, I'm reading about acid reflux in medical journals, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I've been eating this way. That, that's me. It's causing this damage, and Barrett's esophagus, certain type of cancers, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm thinking to think about this. From my junior year of high school through my freshman year of college, I was eating between 7,700 calories and 8,700 calories a day just to maintain weight. If I wanted to gain weight, that'd have to go up to 9,000 calories a day. I was eating enough food for some people that they eat in a year, in a week. And, and that was troubling to myself for, from a sustainability perspective. I mean, in America, we don't realize how, we good, how good we have it. And I just was appalled. That I was like, this was what I was willing to do. And then uh, I'm seeing in these journals, it's like, wait a minute, processed meats, red meats. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I may have caused damage that can't be reversed. So, I mean, then obviously the seminal work, the China study, um, which there are some flaws, you know, that people that picked apart in that, but still. Well, the science is evolving. The science is evolving, correct. And there's still, the, it was a, the largest group of people studied over a period of time ever. And I, I believe. And it just, to me, I was shocked. Actually, you mentioned the China study. The, the author, T. Colin Campbell, has a new book out, which I assume works on the original ideas that he has. I haven't seen it yet, but it'd be fascinating to read it. Yes, I agree. I think that um, I, I haven't read it. I haven't seen it either. But what I'm getting at is it's like, OK, there's a little bit of proof in the pudding here. Um, Americans were sick. And I'm seeing the way I correlate the way I ate. You know, I didn't have the processed sugars and processed carbs, which can also create problems. Diabetes, prediabetes, obesity. I wasn't doing that. I just was eating mass amounts of chicken, egg, steak, dairy, bacon, turkey bacon, which is touted as healthy. Um, And I just was looking at these studies and was appalled. What you were doing, actually, you were doing, you were being far more aggressive in terms of eating those food groups than even, let's say, the worst average American. The, the average American who isn't an athlete, who isn't a football player, but eats the, in quotes, the average American diet. You were doing that and some multiple times over. Absolutely. And it just came to a point where after reading as much as I was reading and, you know, I, I went to the university, I wanted to study conservation biology and I wanted to understand the earth and looking at the earth as an organism and how we can fix degradation and how we can fix anthropogenic climate change. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, the human body in a lot of ways acts like the earth. You can have an oil spill in the ocean and for two years it'll look really bad, but then companies that are that spilled the oil will come back and say, well, look, at after three or four years, you see all these species coming back, but you're not going to see the long-term effects till 15, 20 years down the road on the earth. And I'm thinking about my body as an organism that's from the earth, that is of the earth. And I'm like, wow. So at that point in time, after reading, you know, hundreds of studies, one done in, in England was 30,000 people strong. And they were looking, and this is in the seventies and the eighties. And they're looking at vegetarian diets and colon cancer. And they're look, showing the correlation of if you eat more fruits and vegetables. Now, they weren't advocating for a plant-based diet. They were just studying those that were either vegetarian. And at the time, vegan wasn't in the mainframe, but people that only ate plants. And the, the diseases were far less than those that ate the conventional diet. So I was figuring like, okay, wait a minute. I'm not eating meat anymore. Like I'm done. And then I'm thinking like, oh, vegetarian weight. And then I thought about how many eggs I've eaten in my life. And it was, that was it. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give this a go. And this is the thing that was fascinating to me. I had sinus infections all the time. I had a deviated septum that was fixed. 
It's, you know, between six and eight sinus infections a year. And everything was always antibiotics, antibiotics, antibiotics. And I had acne all the time. It wasn't just on my chin. It wasn't just on my forehead where the helmet sits and where the sweat happens when you're working out. It was everywhere. What do, what do you do? More antibiotics, more drugs. When I So you were locked in a vicious circle. A vicious uh, yeah, a cycle, just nonstop, round and around and around. And it's interesting. I didn't think, when I said, okay, I'm going to try this, the key word is try. I didn't think it was actually going to do anything. I was like, man, how can a nutritionist or, a, or an, a dietitian be wrong about what I was eating? So I tried it. And interestingly, I started losing my football weight. I started losing some belly fat that I had. I started dropping some muscle off that I needed to lose to feel comfortable. I mean, think about this. I wore, I had a 34 inch waist. When I played football, my butt and my legs were so big that I had to wear a 38 size pants. So I could start to fit into clothes and feel better. And this is, I'm, I'm not an NFL player. Think about what these guys have to go through when they're done. I was just one year removed from college football. So, you know, further on down the line, I start to think about, man, I, I feel bad for some of these guys that have to go through this later on when, you know, I was lucky. I, I was done early. These guys, some guys play till 35, 40 years old, and then they have to make that transition at that time, not maybe to a vegan or vegetarian diet, but they have to figure out, okay, what am I going to do to be healthy for the rest of my life? Because there's long living now. And um, what was fascinating to me within six months of this diet, my acne was gone. I'd have few breakouts. Um, and then after about a year and a half, I realized I had maybe one sinus infection. And I, I attribute that to the dairy, the amounts of dairy that we consume from cheese, you know, ice cream, anything. We put creams and things and just milk nonstop. And I was drinking a lot of milk, full fat milk, by the way, whey protein, which is denatured from cheese, which doesn't make any sense to me now. And once I, I realized, like, wait a minute, no sinus infection, our health insurance wouldn't cover. They, they said I had chronic sinusitis. They never tested me or anything. They never did anything. They just said, well, you have so many, you have it. They didn't look at a, from a holistic perspective, okay, well, does he? They just said you do. So were they adding to your premiums? Exactly. Money, 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 which makes the world go round. So, of course. So if I was sick, you know, and my parents had to take that burden because, you know, I'm on their insurance at that age. So, Actually, just uh, you mentioned your parents. There's a scene in your film which we'll get on to talk about when you tell your parents what you're planning to do. Not only go vegetarian, no, you're going to go vegan. You're an Italian family. How did they react? Well, it was it's so great because my family, okay, they 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 think I'm actually they know I'm nuts. I mean, it's that's that's I'm not. <laughs> well, you probably dad, eat a lot of nuts now. <laughs> my dad, uh, my dad used to call my brother Anthony and I nuts and bolts. So they were, they were like, my mom had no clue. She's like, what? What is this? Now, she goes from cooking, growing up, cooking me all. She had to revolve her whole day around as, what am I feeding Santino today? And where do your family live? They live in Illinois. They live in a suburb north of Chicago. But um, what am I feeding Santino today to doing that? And then I'm like, well, mom, I'm going to be vegan. I'm going to do this. She, what the hell is a vegan diet? Excuse me. And I'm, I'm trying to explain it to her. And then my dad, the same thing, was like, Wait, okay. But the thing that was striking, looking back on it now, you know, my, we have an Italian restaurant still in the Chicagoland area where my grandma worked. She cooked till, you know, till her last day. Like she, we have pride. Our culture is tied to our food. 
So my grandma never understood it. I'd come in from being out of town for a while, come and see her. She'd ask, oh, you, you want me to make you a meatball? And my Aunt Patty would be like, mom, he doesn't eat meat anymore. She'd be like, that doesn't make any sense and just move on. But the one thing they never did was they never judged me. They didn't ever come down on me and they were tolerant. And I, and it's interesting. I didn't, I'm not, I don't push veganism. I think that, like I said, our food choices are tied to our culture. And in some cases you may have people that will be willing to change their religion before they'll be able to change, before they're willing to change their diet. And I didn't want to be that person that tried to, to, to shove my beliefs into someone's face. I didn't want to do that. I think that it's a very personal choice and you have to come to it yourself. Well, how do you cope with, clearly there are social implications for anyone who makes this kind of change. And I've gone through it as well because I'm a, I follow a pescatarian diet. So I'm mostly vegan, a little bit vegetarian because I maybe eat a little bit of dairy occasionally, but mostly vegan, but fish a couple of times a week. And there is a, a social transition that you go through where your friends and, and family and those that you associate with most, most have to accept that. And you continue life and you continue to go out to dinner. But there's a, a process that you go through, isn't there, to, to just get on with normal life? Absolutely. So, again, for me, the personal experience, I was very fortunate because my friends, like, I, I'm just kind of out there as it is. So it was just like, ah, oh, it's just something he's doing. You know, like he, he believes in this. He, this is what he wants to do. Great. And move on. But in the athletic circles, definitely my friends that were involved in still competing in college football and professional football. And then I, I have some friends that are professional fighters, be it boxers or mixed martial artists in the UFC. And they were very concerned. Like, I can't do that. I, I lose all my muscle mass. And the fighters' virility and toughness and masculinity. I mean, this was like something that was, I was like, wait a minute, why does meat make you tough? But it makes sense because we're sold this idea that meat is masculinity and meat is toughness. You look at Super Bowl commercials with, you know, what what the general public is our perception of what a gorgeous woman is in a bikini eating a burger and saying, you know, man, how do you get your woman hot? And it's like it's associated with that virility and masculinity. Or you see a commercial of a fast food restaurant harping on how you can't be tough eating tofu. You have to have that burger and they throw a minivan off the bridge. It just I started to like be exposed to these ideas. And I was like, wow, there are so many different connotations attached to this. I didn't never realize what I was getting into. I just wanted to do this for health. And if I go out to eat with somebody and I ask for a salad or I ask for grilled vegetables or steamed vegetables because there's nothing on the menu that could help that, that, that adheres to my diet and they're confused, like, wait, what? Do you want something else? Are you Are you just not hungry? And then I tell them and they're like, no, I can never do that. I can't give up this. I can't give up that. No way. Um, There's a really interesting section in your film about just this subject, the sort of masculinity uh, connections with, with protein and, and with, with muscle. And I've detected, I know, I think things are changing. If you, if you listen to conversations in the gym these days, it is becoming more acceptable, isn't it, to say that you're, you're vegan. There isn't that kind of looking down on you, that you're not quite good enough, that you're not doing the right things, and you're not serious about your physicality. I think that's changing. Absolutely. We have examples. I mean, the film... You know, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Like there's these athletes have been out there. It's just exposure. Um, But now you have films that have exposed issues like Forks Over Knives. It did a wonderful job of doing that. It's not in your face. It's, It's a great film that kind of breaks down the China study in a way. And it shows the health implications of diet. And then you had Cowspiracy with Kip and Keegan. They, you know, they expose the environmental, you know, we want to fight climate change and they really kind of showed how we're, you know, 
certain organizations aren't doing their part. We're not bringing food to the table as, wait, this has, a, has an impact on climate and a very large one. Um, so much more than the, about the same or more than the transportation industry combined. Boats, planes, buses, cars, everything um, in the world that is transportation. So they did an incredible job in their expose of showing that the, you know, the environmental organizations that are trying to fight climate change might not be doing it the right way. And then, again, they're what the health. If you saw that and then the response from NFL players, like, we need to look at what we're eating because at our training tables, it's ribs, it's steak, and it is becoming more of an accepted norm. Now, on the coasts, a lot more. It's more or less trying to get this in front of people that might need it more. In certain parts of the Midwest and Midwestern cities, there's high, you know, childhood obesity, childhood diabetes. And I don't want to push anybody in a direction they don't want to go. But our healthcare costs are exponential in this country. And our politicians don't seem to be wanting to do anything to really help the people. We talk about the people and patriotism. How about you talk about patriotism in a way like where we're not sick? What I often talk about is you mentioned healthcare costs. If only we could repair those health issues that all we need to do is change what we eat, the food that we put into our mouths, and save the money that we spend on repairing the issues like obesity and spend it on those diseases that we do need some intense research for. And there are many, many diseases that we can't cure by changing what we eat. But in terms of healthcare funding and, and financing, this has huge global potential, I think. I agree with you. And it's interesting. You make, a, you make a very logical point. But what I see in this country is the logical point of health and food then becomes an argument against autonomy. Well, you're telling these people they can't eat something. You're telling these people they don't need sugar. It's interesting that it, then we start to talk about patriotism and then it comes down to ideological beliefs as opposed to like, okay, wait a minute. Well, I, I don't think people should be told they can't eat anything. I agree. It's the, the word moderation, I think, is a, a great key. word. It's Correct. an absolute key word. You're not going to ban sugar. Sugar isn't all 100% bad. Right. And neither is fat. Right. It's moderation. Correct. And that's, I think, that the, the approach that I've tried to take with plant-based eating. You know, if I meet someone and it just happens, I don't bring it up. I don't like to just go out and throw the flag up and say I'm vegan because it's not, you're not going to change anything that way. Well, the, the word vegan has taken on a kind of negative, Correct. almost sissy-like connotation, right. hasn't it? And the thing that I try to do is when it gets brought up and, or I'm with in a business meeting and we're at a business dinner and I'm eating and, it, and we start talking about it, I use the moderation all the time. It's like veganism tends to try to look at utopia and perfection. Both are unattainable. I mean, the perfection is a great goal. Jerry Rice, Joe Montana strive. Tom Brady strives for perfection, if we use the sport analogy. Knowing it can't be achieved, but it pushes them to get better and hunger for more uh, in their respective careers. But when people think that they have to be perfect all the time, that sets up the recipe for failure. So if somebody may not have the ability, whether it's financially, whether it's their job has them travel, where there's certain norms they have to follow. If they have to go to a foreign country and part of their business is to break bread with the people that they go to and it's disrespectful in that culture, if you turn away food, uh, that could ruin a business deal. Now, I know that sounds superficial, but at the end of the day, now I wouldn't, 
I would not eat it. That's how I am now with what I know. But certain people aren't at that point yet. It, the moderation, it's like, okay, so Meatless Monday, let's start there. That's great. And then if you're looking at doing things more, then let's go to the hierarchy. Red meat and processed meat are terrible. They just, the way we process the food, the way we cook the food, and then what it does to our bodies. We know this. There is scientific evidence that shows this. Okay, then start there. Maybe take that out. Okay, you want to eat chicken two or three times a week. That's fantastic. Do what you need to do. And then it goes to fish and then down the line. But we, so, so let me ask you that question yes. then. And I, I mentioned it in the introduction. You, you make a big deal of it in the film, in the documentary. Where do you get your protein? As a vegan, you can get your protein from a lot of sources. Lentils, you can get them from oats, you can get them from seeds like chia seeds, hemp seeds, and you get other great nutrients like iron and you get your omega-3s from chia seeds. Uh, you can get it if, if beans, you're... A, beans, beans are my favorite because they're so easy. Yeah, they're easy, they're accessible, they're cheap, and they're healthy. Fiber, I mean, part of the reason why plant-based diets, vegetarian or vegan, are so healthy is that you're cleaning out your body. It's roughage. Your your body says, "Oh, I don't want I don't want this in it," and it gets it gets rid of it. Whereas opposed to on a meat based diet, it sits, it acidifies, it builds, it builds, it builds, it creates polyps, it creates cancer. Whereas plant based foods, your body's like, "Whoa!" It gets rid of it. You hold on to certain nutrients and. You're good to go. But, I mean, protein is – it's funny because we think we need so much protein because of this whole idea from the 50s of what, what's going to make us strong, what's going to make us big. But at the end of the day, you can do – you can find protein – 100 grams – 100 calories of broccoli has more concentrated protein than, say, 100 calories from steak. One of the graphics that you put up in the film is of the uh, protein content. You mentioned oats. And I looked at the number, and you compare oats with eggs. And right. you say three eggs, 18 grams of protein, one cup of oats, 26 grams of protein. And I eat oats every day, and I, I do it for that reason. But I looked at the number, 26 grams of protein compared with 18 grams, and I thought, that can't be right. And I actually went away and checked it, and you're absolutely right. right. 26 grams of protein, which is, for Someone, we're about the same height and roughly about the same sort of build. I mean, you're a little bit younger than I, but uh, we generally need about the same, depending on what we're doing athletics-wise, about the same amount of protein, which I'm guessing is about 50 to 60 grams of protein a day. Obviously, if you're doing intense football or you're running a marathon, you're going to want a bit more protein then. But uh, roughly maybe 60 grams of protein. There's a third of your protein. There's nearly half of your protein, actually, just in that bowl of oatmeal in the morning. Right. And it's... um. It's interesting. So you have to kind of buffer too. You might not be holding on to all that protein because there's fiber, there's other things going on in your body. So that's a great number. That's a great base to start with. But know that if you don't hold on to that, then throughout the rest of your day, if you use protein powders, there's vegan protein supplements that you can get raw organic hemp that per four tablespoons has 14 grams of protein. You can put chia seeds in that. That adds another three. That's 17. Oh, and a cup of organic soy milk, maybe one ingredient, reverse osmosis, organic soybeans, if people are worried about genetically modified organisms. One cup of that, there's another 10 grams. So it's like, you're okay. It's just like, we. It's it's all about time and knowledge. The more information people have, the better that they can make their choices. But the the information can't be skewed. That's like one of the things with from the ground up that I tried to do at the, as best as I could was tell a story that, okay, the other side is not represented because I was the other side. And I'm just trying to figure out, okay, what was I missing or what did I not know? But Actually, I just wanted just to go back to protein. I yes. wanted to ask you the protein question yes, go ahead. just really to show yes. that actually it can be very easily answered 
in about two minutes. Yes. You, you listed maybe half a dozen food food right. products there, and it, it's an easy answer. Right. It, it it isn't brain surgery. Correct. To figure out how you get your protein. Well, it's also one of the arguments that needs to be made is, and I think it has been made, it's just maybe not might be in the fray, is like, okay, you need certain fats and carbs in your diet too. Your brain runs on sugar and fats. You know, you need good sources of that with the protein. It's not all about protein. Right. You need macro, you need your micros as well. You need certain vitamins in your body from your foods. It's, but we've emphasized this, especially in America, because I think post-World War II with industrialization of the food system and factory farming, where you have products like alfalfa, corn, soy, just an overabundance because of subsidies that are fed to cattle that, okay, well, we got to sell all these products and we need people to eat it. And it's like there's an overabundance that it's push, push, push. Well, then the argument focuses on the nutrient of protein. We need to get in the headspace of, okay, protein is just one small piece to the puzzle of health. And you don't want too much protein that can stress your kidneys. I mean, I have... You're getting back to that moderation again. That's right. comes down to moderation. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, you can do damage like benign cysts on your kidneys when you're not supposed to have them because you're eating too much protein. I mean, this is an experience that I, I had to dealt with at a young age. You see benign cysts on people's kidneys when they reach their 50s. You don't see it in their 20s. And it comes down to, you know, doctors couldn't give me an exact answer, but I kept hearing trauma or protein. I mean, getting hit in football, you get hit in your kidneys sometimes. I used to box. You get hit in your kidneys. It's a part of the game. It's part of, the, it's part of life in, in sports that are physical and that are contact. But I just kept hearing trauma or protein. And then I'm looking at, like, wait a minute. I was eating how many grams of protein a day? And was I drinking enough water? No. That was another thing that was shocking to me was, like, you were just dehydrating yourself, just eating all this protein. So we need to, the conversation needs to shift and say, okay, wait a minute. Macronutrients, fat, carbs, and sugars, you know, those are important so you can have energy. But it's the right ratio. And it's moderation. And especially if you're an athlete, yes, you increase your protein intake to ensure you're meeting the caloric needs. Either you're gaining muscle or if you're a marathon runner, you're replacing your glycogen, so on and so forth. But, I mean, protein is made to be this big deal, and it's really not. That's the, at the end of the day. All right. I think we're on the same page yes, sir. on that. Let's talk about the foam. Okay. Why did you want to make this documentary? So it actually, I am, I love the natural world. I am, I think that what, in my opinion, there's no such thing as capital without natural capital. For money, you need a resource to print it on. We need to breathe air. We need to drink water. And when I first went vegan, it was primarily for health reasons. But then once I started to understand the consequences of my food choices, I had this terrible epiphany of like, okay, wait, I call myself an environmentalist and I'm studying about the natural world and that's what I want to do, work to protect the natural world. I could not believe the damage I was doing. Um, Just the methane emissions from red meat, the carbon emissions from our food system, just the heating the earth up. I felt like I was greedy. And I was, I was hurting essentially what gives me life, the earth. And so fast forward to my master's program and working, um, I'm studying some of the same things I'm learning in my undergrad and we're attacking problems the same way that we attacked problems in the seventies for environmental issues, but it's times have changed. We have to evolve. And around the time that I started pre-production for this movie, the, the salient, the, the primary reason I wanted to do this was to promote better living 
for our health and for the environment as well as for the animals. And I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't pushy because as consumers, we're not looked at as constituents. Our policymakers look at us as consumers. So if we vote with our dollar and we make the right food choices, we can slow the negative consequences of anthropogenic climate change. That was the first goal of the film. And I didn't want to do it in a way that was heavy handed. I wanted to allow people to feel okay if they wanted to consume animal products, again, moderation. And I didn't want to do it in an expose manner that it's like I'm trying to uncover these truths because they're, they've been there. They've been there. Food has been a part of the problem, you know, since we, the standard American diet, we kind of made this shift post-World War II and we impacted the world with it. Cheap, convenient meat and how we subsidize with our farm bill and so on and so forth. So I think the way that your film stands out from, from others on, on similar topics is the cast list. You have a huge number of well-known athletes talking to you about their lifestyles and their diets. Just tell us about a few of them and how you managed to, to get them to talk to you. Yeah, so I'm a first-time filmmaker. This I have no background in film. I have nothing. I just decided that one day I was tired of learning the same things and not solving any issues that I wanted to figure out how you could motivate people uh, to make positive changes. And sports have always been a motivating factor in my life. My dad, to teach me important lessons about discipline, he utilized athletes and the way they lived. It was very intelligent because it kind of set the bedrock for me in life, kind of set the foundation of discipline. And I wanted to inspire people. And I think that to inspire people to make change, you have to have something that they can relate to. And I think sports, you know, most people relate to sports. So when I wrote the when I wrote the pitch deck and I wrote the script and I figured, okay, I got to go get this money, but first I got to get people to sign on to make this movie. I mean, it was tough. You know, Scott Jurek is not only a rock star vegan, you know, we use the term rock star, but he's made a dent in the world in a lot of places. Same with Rich Roll. I mean, these guys have far reach outside of the vegan world that it would be difficult. Like, I'm sure there was multiple people asking them to be a part of it, which there were. Multiple films, same request to be in this film. So I'm very passionate about it. And I think that that was able to get them involved. It was like, I don't need to sell you a hamburger. This is what I believe in. And this is this is how I feel, and I think we can make an, uh, make a difference. So it was just kind of getting the initial conversation out of the way, whether it was through their publicist or they, the publicist could trust me. Wait, you don't have a production company. You've never made a movie. Ha, wait, wait, okay, so maybe. And then I start talking to people, and whether it's agents or whatever, and they're like, can you put that passion on paper? Can you write that out? I was just about to say, for anyone, this is our first time of meeting. If anyone gets to meet you, they will detect your passion <laughs> within a few minutes. So if, if that's what it takes to persuade someone like a Rich Roll, who does a great podcast, by the way, yes. on the, on this and other subjects. But he, he, he displays ultimately the, the passion for this subject. Right. But you've got it. Yeah, well, you have to – I think no matter what you do in life, no matter if it – you know, my dad and, and my, my family, my mom, they taught me early that you're going to have to do things you don't want to do. That's a part of it. It's a part of the game. You're not always going to be happy. There's fleeting moments of joy. And part of being healthy is understanding that you can't control everything. It's sometimes you got to do things, but do it with a smile, do it with fire, do it with passion. That's what I was taught. And I don't ever want to do something where it's going to take time off of my life and not do it with a, with a smile and with vigor and passion and fire. So I think that this is a project that I really believe in and I, I really loved doing it and I really want to just inspire people to make change. So when I was able to articulate that to some of these agents or publicists or the athletes themselves, they were great 
you know, to be a part of it. One of the athletes I was really proud to have a part of it was Mac Danzig. And one of the, I'm going to talk about Mac Danzig. I'm going to talk about Gene Bauer. I'll start with Mac first. When I first became vegan, Mac was on the Ultimate Fighter show. And the one thing that I did not like about like this whole vegan world was it was pushy and people, the connotations attached to it, it would create this divide. But the thing that Mac did that was incredible was it was not in your face. He was this man. He was a man. He was masculine, the, the traditional notion of masculinity. And he did what he said he was going to do. And on the Ultimate Fighter show, he got kind of mocked for what he did and he ripped through everyone. And I was at a critical point during my time starting this vegan path, so to speak, this journey where I didn't know if I could do it. And then I see Mac and his way of telling his story was incredible to me. It just inspired me so much. And when he agreed to be a part of the movie, I I was indebted to him because there was a point where I was at a fork in the road and he helped me stay on that path without even knowing it. So if this movie does that for someone, if it gives it a push, that is the point. And I tried to tell the story the way Mac told his story. And then moving on to Gene Bauer, when I was studying sustainability at Arizona State, finishing my undergrad, Gene Bauer's book, Farm Sanctuary, Changing, Heart, Changing Hearts and Minds About Food and the Food. I can't remember the subtitle. Okay. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he exposed for me the real environmental issues. It was the first time. And this is a book about compassion and it's not just compassion for animals. It's compassion for ourselves, for the people that work in these industries, in the food industry, and compassion for the earth. And he shed light on this, and I had a chance to see him speak at Arizona State. This is incredible. You know, 12 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever it was. And after, the spe- the, the, after he gave his talk, I went up to him, and I told him that he had a thorough impact on my life, and I really appreciate it, and he signed my book. And um, I said, can I keep in touch with you? And he gave me his email. And I emailed him, you know, a few times throughout the year as the years went on. And then I wanted to make this movie and I wanted to have him a part of it because he is somebody It's in a sense, paying it forward. His message, you know, he, he started Farm Sanctuary the year I was born, 1986. One of the largest, organiz- one of the largest you know, animal sanctuaries in, in America. The first, I believe. Um, I could be wrong. I'm not sure. Um, but he did it in a way that was moderation. He doesn't go and push Push, push, push. He says it's about moderation. Take baby steps. We want compassion for all living things. Animals are friends, not food. But you have to come to it through baby steps. And he did it in such a non-judgmental way. It was just a beautiful thing and the ebb and flow of his message and just how sweet he was. I wanted to be able to give that back. So when I emailed him, he had no problem. And it was, you know, he emailed me back. And this is a man that was, by Time Magazine, they call him the conscious of the food movement. And, like, how humble he was. And just, I'm so grateful to have that opportunity to have him in the film and to represent Farm Sanctuary. That was, meant the world to me because, you know, you get opportunities and people are there for you in, in little ways you have to pay that down. It's a debt to me and it's not a financial debt. It's just in my heart and soul, I have to be able to give what's been given to me. Yeah. You did a great job and it it really is a great cast of characters. And, uh, well, let's just let people watch the film because there's, there's a lot in there, a lot of different perspectives, but uh, I think a a common goal. So I think from multiple perspectives, it's it's a really good watch and uh, I think you've done a really good job. Let me ask you, you, we talk on this podcast about human longevity, living a long and healthy life. We talk about health span as opposed to to lifespan. It's living long and optimizing the, the healthy years that we have. Do you think about your own longevity? Do you think about getting old and how you would like to get old? I absolutely do. I think that 
this is my perspective, but at the end of the day, we're all going to die. It's there's if the moment you start breathing is the first, you know, that's the first moment. That's the first breath towards death. It's a very uncomfortable topic. It's a very uncomfortable subject. I want to live a healthy and I want to live a long life, but there's always an end to the journey. And I think that at the end of the day, you have to have a why you have to have the why. And then the how is secondary. You know, Nietzsche said, and I'll paraphrase because I think that it's male dominated, but he or she who has a why can bear almost any how. And I truly believe that longevity can be associated with that why. You know, um, my dad, in my mind, they are the, some of the hardest working people I've ever met, and they do it for their kids. Their why is us. And again, it's about paying it forward. I want to make my dad proud. I want to make my family proud. And it's a why. So the longevity, I think, yes, food, exercise, sleep, a lot of water. Of course, that's all part of it. But you have to have that why. Because everything else, then, no matter what, the hardships, the pain, the suffering, that's a part of the process. And that's what creates the joy. It's like if you have orange juice, you can go to the store and you can get from concentrate and you can quench that thirst for orange juice. But if you plant a tree and you let that, that tree grow and you let the oranges fall off the tree and then you take it and you squeeze, that juice is so much sweeter. That's the way I try to look at it. You have to have the why. you got to plant the seed, let the, let the seed grow, let turn it into a tree. And then harvest what you need. And that's, that's how I try to live my life. So the heart of the why for you is, is other people. I think so. In some sense, yes. In I do. I, I believe that we have everything we need on earth. And it's important for us to be kind to each other, to be kind to other sentient beings, and to be kind to the earth. That's what I think is the goal, is compassion and, and living and helping each other realize we all have the same want. The necessity is we need clothing, we need shelter, we need food, you know, that's necessity. But a lot of people just want, they feel like there's something more and that's what their happiness that they're chasing and we're all in it together. It's just like taking a little bit of time to help people understand, like, you know, just try to be kind and, and help each other. So... I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. How do we watch the film? So if you're looking to see the film, you can rent or buy across multiple platforms on demand. You know, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, PlayStation View, etc. It's pretty easy these days, isn't it? Absolutely. It's everything's at the fingertips of technology. And are you a filmmaker now as opposed to being an athlete? I think I really love the art of film and I think that film can get people from multiple spectrums on the same page so I would like to think yes I'm a pseudo filmmaker hopefully someday I can call myself a filmmaker that's seasoned I just have a lot to learn that's that's life you always have a lot to learn and and you can gain so much from knowledge and lessons and I'll tell you this making from the ground up was the most expensive education I've ever had <laughs> I bet it was Santino Panico it's been really good to see you thank you very much it's an honor to be here thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to spend with you it's my pleasure and just before we go a reminder that there are several ways to listen to us you can also get in touch the live long and master aging website is at lamapodcasts.com lamapodcasts.com the site is constantly evolving there's new information there there's a complete back catalogue of our interviews and if you're listening on a platform where you can leave a review like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher a five star review will be hugely appreciated if you think we deserve it it helps us to grow the podcast and to secure its future in social media Twitter Instagram we're at Lama Podcast. Many thanks for listening.
FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.